Hi, I'm Louise Gardner, and I'm the founder and managing director of Pledge Consulting. Today, I'd like to welcome you to the fifth episode and the penultimate episode in this series of the PMO and Project Leadership podcast. Today, we'll again be looking back at the PMO Leadership Symposium that we held in August, and we have a real treat today. We're going to hear from Stuart Easton. Stuart's the CEO of Transparent Choice. Uh, He's UK-based, but he's around all over the world for being a thought leader in portfolio management. Today, uh, we're going to hear him running a prioritisation masterclass at the symposium. And really, uh, if you're interested in this subject, you'll, you'll really get a lot out of Stuart's presentation. As usual, the full video is available on the Pledge Consulting website. A couple of times, Stuart refers to slides uh, you'll hear in the audio. It does make sense without the slides, but if you enjoy what you hear, please don't hesitate, jump on the site, and you can see there that the full presentation. So without further ado, let's welcome Stuart Easton. Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Portfolio leaders often think of prioritization as just being this this thing you do once a year. It's part of the budgeting cycle. Uh, It's really not very interesting. It's It's a pain, right? It's a political process. Nobody likes it. Nobody enjoys it. And at some level, my goal today is is to change your mind, right? I don't want you to think of it that way because it really isn't a budgeting process. Um, Prioritization is actually all about the things that you've just been talking about. It's all about delivering good value. It's about delivering successful projects. It's about enabling your organization to achieve its uh, its business goals. So, you know, Jade was just talking about um, you know, uh, emotional intelligence and, and things and, and people. Well, prioritization is all about people. It's about, uh, it's about multiple people with different agendas, all trying to figure out what the best thing, you know, where, where the best place is to invest uh, your resources. But of course, those people are fallible. Those people are political beasts. You know, we evolved in communities where politics matters. And and so here we are. We like to think of ourselves as highly evolved beasts. But actually, right there at the back of your brain, the lizard is still sitting there. And uh, and he wants to fight for his chunk of of the the food. Um, And uh, and that's very often how uh, executives act when they're prioritizing projects. We're going to look a little bit at why prioritization matters now with emphasis on the now for obvious reasons. Um, uh, we're going to look at, we're also going to go and look at a really difficult problem, which is, you know, pe- people always talk about uh, strategic alignment, this magical thing, right? And, um, and actually strategic alignment is really difficult. It matters, matters a lot, but it's really difficult. Um, then we're going to look at how to use that as uh, as part of the prioritization process. How to use strategic alignment to make sure you pick in the right projects, and 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 then how do you use that prioritized list to um, to balance your portfolio? Uh, you know, there's there's, um, there's been a lot of discussion today, I'm sure, about how do we deliver projects successfully? And one of the things, you know, one of the key causes of project failure is just having too many projects or having too few resources. That's, that's the same statement, just phrased the other way around. Uh, and I would argue that generally, if, if you have too many projects, actually what you have is too little focus, right? You have enough resources, or at least you have the resources your organization can afford to give you, but you don't have enough focus on the projects that really matter. 
and uh, and then deprioritize the ones that don't. So so we should be able to cover all of that in uh, in an hour. And um, uh, let's let's move on. Um, now, I'm, I'm, you've obviously been having a pretty um, uh, interactive session, uh, uh, and I would encourage you to keep that going. Um, so I'm sure Louise has got an eagle eye on the, the Q&A panel. So if you do have any questions, um, raise your hand and, and we, can, uh, we can deal with those. So this is, this is an, interesting, uh, an interesting slide. So this is this is based on this particular number is based on research into government organisations and 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 their overall performance. And what the research found is that if you can align the activities of your organisation with the with the strategy, right? So if you can have a, a nice strategy, a nice clear strategy, and then align everything you do with that strategy. Um, uh, it turns out that that strategic alignment explains about 80% of the, the performance of that organization, right? So, so strategic alignment, aligning your activity to the goals of the organization isn't some academic uh, hand-waving exercise. It's not something that is optional. It absolutely makes a difference betwe between your organization performing well and performing badly. And when I say your organization, I don't mean the project delivery team. I mean your organization, the government body that you work for, the company that you work for, whatever, whatever it is. Now, that's, that's a massive impact. Um, you know, eight, have, having eight, you know, being, the, being the team that influences 80% of, um, uh, uh, of the value of your organization is, is quite a responsibility. Um, if you're in IT, by the way, and you're sitting there thinking, well, I, I can't influence, you know, what they're doing in manufacturing and I can't influence what they're doing in HR and I can't influence this and that and the other. Um, the, the equivalent number for, um, uh, for IT was, was something like 40%. So, so if your IT strategy really supports the organization, it, it has a massive disproportionately massive impact on the overall performance of your company or your government agency or where, wherever it is that you work. Um, now, there's a, there's a kind of interesting interesting book. I, you know, as, as Louise mentioned, I, I occasionally do a bit of guest lecturing over at, uh, at, at Oxford University. Um, and uh, one, of the, one of the profs over there, uh, Jonathan Trevor recently published this this book, which talks about strategic alignment and its impact um, on on overall organization development and and how to go about achieving it. Now, this this book's really written more at the the top level, the organizational level, not really at the portfolio level. But it's it's an easy read. It's a quick read. You can grab it on Amazon, and I would recommend it uh, because, as Louise knows, one of one of my biggest recommendations to any portfolio leader is to become more conversant with business in general and, and with your business in particular. Um, understand, you know, spend time, invest in yourself to learn the language, to understand what your executives are wrestling with, to make sure that you, uh, you know what they care about and how you can have an impact on that. Um, and, and you'd be surprised what a big impact 
the portfolio team can have, the PMO team can have. Um, uh, not only can it help you get aligned in, in the way that Jonathan Trevor um, uh, discusses, uh, uh, talks about in his book, but when weird things happen, that that understanding of the business can really transform the value of the PMO. So as an example, um, uh, and I think, uh, well, well, we'll probably come back to this in, in a minute. Well, actually, it's the next slide. So as an example, um, uh, and you have to mention it at least once every talk, um, you know, right now we, we, there's a pretty unique, unique in my experience, um, event going on around the world. And... Um, Executives around the world are responding to this with three questions. Um, you know, they're asking three questions of the business, of themselves, but especially of the portfolio leads, the, the PMOs. So the three questions that, that they're asking are, what activities can I or should I stop now? Okay, so, so we've got, crisis we've got rapid change the, the environment has changed what should we stop doing to free up resources to conserve cash uh, all of the things that we all know about the second question is what should we start or what should we emphasize more um, to to help us cope in the short term and then the third question is what should we be doing to help transform to the new normal and these are all questions that the pmo should be absolutely involved in answering. The PMO should have enough knowledge about the business and where the business is going to be able to actively engage in this discussion, to be able to inform that discussion, to provide data to that discussion, um, to have a voice. And, uh, and many organizations, um, in many organizations, uh, that, that, that level of business engagement just doesn't exist that level of understanding so i would strongly recommend you to go and you know do some reading about strategy and strategic alignment and business overall um, uh, because it really will help you drive the the portfolio much more effectively so these three questions have actually uh, acted as something of a wake-up call for senior leadership uh, in many organizations because they realize that they don't have a good understanding of what's important, what's really important, and what's important in the context of change and uncertainty. There's no way of measuring it. There's no way of quantifying that. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing all kinds of organizations, some doing a really good job of getting their arms around prioritization, you know, prioritizing their activity, um, uh, doing a really good job of that uh, and doing it quickly. Um, but we're also seeing organizations where it's been done really badly, where, where people are going out and fighting for their political corner or they're defending their own projects because they're my projects um, and they're not looking at what's, what is it, what activities are going to make the biggest impact. Um, so, so, this is, this is really interesting because executives are suddenly starting to realize the importance of this thing that, that up to now they just thought of as part of the planning cycle, right? Every year we're going to have a fight, you know, we're going to have a political fight, we're going to pick some projects and move forward. Um, uh, now they're realizing that the projects they pick have a direct impact on their ability to execute the business and to de-risk the business moving forward. 
So, um, so this represents uh, an opportunity for the PMO to step up and say, right, you know, it's time to upgrade the way that we've been doing this. Right. It's time to do it properly and to, to look at best practice and to really engage in that. Um, to go from this sort of once a year uh, political fight to something that looks a lot more agile. You know, you, you were all just talking about agile a few minutes ago. Um, and, uh, you know, within within the the, at the portfolio level, doing this this governance thing of selecting which projects to be in, there's, there's certainly an opportunity to be far more agile while, while at the same time being far more, um, uh, far more focused on delivering strategic value. And, and that strategic value really does, as I said, it really does matter. Um, uh, projects are far more successful if, if they're aligned with your corporate strategy. So, you know, I'm not going to read the, the slide for you, but the, the, the message from this one is that projects that, that are aligned with strategy are far, far more successful. So this data comes from PMI, Pulse of the Profession. Um, so those of you who've read that document, you'll know that it's it's based on several thousand, uh, a survey of several thousand PMO leaders, leaders around the world. Um, the, the data is reasonably, reasonably good as these things go, you know, so it's not some vendor making up some numbers and then waving it around. This is PMI data. Um, and uh, so, you know, one of the, so, so it's really important, in other words, to be selecting projects that really support your overall direction. Um, they're going to be more successful. Um, now, unfortunately, as an industry, we're not very good at doing this. Okay, so this data again came from, from the PMI. Um, so one in five projects, one in five of the projects you're working on today are probably waste, right? So the, the phrase in the, in the PMI report was something like, your projects that are so badly aligned, they should be stopped tomorrow, right? So these aren't even the projects that just aren't very well aligned. These are the ones that are just pointing in completely the wrong direction that should be stopped tomorrow, uh, which is a pretty good definition of waste. Um, so 20%, one in five of your, your projects are, are being... Uh, 20% you know, of your resources are, are being allocated to projects that really aren't adding a load of value. Gosh, that's, that's quite a big number. Um, and at the same time, half of the projects uh, out there are under-resourced. Okay, and again, this is all, all PMI data. Um, now, if you think about projects being under-resourced, if you want to guarantee project failure, under-resourcing your projects is a really good way to do it, right? So, uh, so this picture is from Cat in the Hat, uh, which, uh, if you don't know it, it's a, a children's book. Um, I, I used to uh, read this to my kids even before they were born. I would read this every night um, to to my wife's belly, and because um, uh, I read some research that showed that uh, uh, when fathers do that uh, pre pre birth, if when they read their kids a story uh, every night. The, the children respond much better to them when they're, they're eventually born. They actually recognize your voice. My, my kids are now 12. I'm not sure they respond that well to me. But anyway, Cat in the Hat, um, he, he, he kind of does this trick where he's, he's kind of balancing on a big ball. He's juggling loads of stuff in the air. As you can see, he's balancing all this stuff. And, uh, and the children in the book say, no, that's not, not a good idea. You're going to drop it. He says, no, 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 no. Um, I can do this. I can do this. In fact, bring on more. And then the, the, next, the next phrase is something like, you know, that's what the cat said. Then he fell on his head. 
right? And that's that's what happens when you take on too many projects, or if you don't have enough resource. And and actually, you know, one this is one of the the clearest messages that you can give to your leadership team. Um, you know, many leadership teams don't really understand the importance of um, uh, of uh, picking the right projects and exercising this governance process in a way that you're working on the right things and have the right resources allocated to them. Um, there's some research from Australia, funnily enough, that looks at the causes of project failure. And 40% of that project failure comes before you even start the project. It comes in this portfolio planning, um, uh, portfolio planning level. Okay, so 40% of project failure um, comes from, uh, from this, this portfolio planning and governance uh, process. So if we could fix this, it would make a really, uh, really, big, uh, really big difference, uh, obviously. So, uh, so some of the things, um, you know, so obviously, you know, we, 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 we talked about not having enough resources and I've hinted at this piece before. Um, you know, this is the most common cry that I hear from PMO leaders and I, I just disagree with it. I'm sorry. Um, you have the resources you have. You may have the ability to get more resources. You may not, but you have the resources that you have. Um, so, you know, you have uh, at some level, you've, you've got the right amount of resource that the organization can afford to give you. Um, and as I say, you, you can make a case for more resources or fewer resources, but, you know, let, let's work with the fact that you, you know, or the assumption that you've got enough resources. So what you're lacking is focus. You're trying to do too much with the resources that you have. Right. So, so think of it this way. Um, you know, you, we, we all take a, a salary. Um, and, you know, you, you know, that salary has to see you through the month. And so you can go and buy a new swimming pool and drive a Ferrari and eat out every night at really expensive restaurants. And at the end of it, you can say, I, I, I have uh, I don't have enough money. And the answer is no, it's not that you don't have enough money, it's that you're spending too much money. You're trying to do too much with the money that you have. Okay, it's the same thing with project resources. So the answer is really simple, right? If we've got 20% of our portfolio is waste, 50% of our projects are under-resourced, um, really all we need to do is identify which projects are wasteful. So on this, on this chart, this axis is all about strategic fit. You know, how important is my project? You know, what business impact does it have? Lots of ways of saying this, business impact, value, so on and so forth. Um, and then how well is my project doing? Is it doing well or is it doing badly? <clears throat> so if we can identify the projects that really add value and, and more importantly, identify the ones that, that uh, are waste, um, and, and if we look at this, we can see that we also have some potential waste up here. These are projects that are important, but are at risk of failing, right, for, for some reason. Very often it's a resource constraint that, that's, that's causing a resource conflict that's, that, that can be causing that um, and a lack of executive focus. Um, so, so if we can identify the projects that are waste down here, then we can, we can stop them. We can stop those projects or deprioritize them or whatever you want to call it. Uh, find the right language for your organization and we can take the resources and the executive focus uh, and we can move it into these projects that are at risk. 
and support those projects and, and make, turn them around, make sure they're really successful so that we end up with more projects in this top right quadrant. We want them all in this top right quadrant, you know, projects that are adding value and we want them to be going well. Um, so, you know, we, we've talked about prioritization um, at this sort of high level of organizational impact. We've talked about it from the point of view of resources. Now let's look at it from the point of view of project success. Um, this is a bit of a busy, a busy uh, picture, and, and don't worry about the stuff on the left for now. Let's let's focus on the the, the herringbone, the fishbone diagram on the right. Um, so one of the things I, I want to, you know, if you if you're not convinced that prioritization matters. Uh, by thinking about you know impact on the business, let's look at just project success rates. Right, this is something that as as a PMO lead, you should absolutely be uh, absolutely care about, um, and we all do. So let's look at why projects fail. Well, they fail because we don't have enough resources. They fail because we have poor executive sponsorship and and so on. Right, scope creep and and poor alignment and. And the, so these are taken from a quick troll of the internet. Uh, there are all kinds of gurus and pseudo gurus out there telling you why projects fail. So I kind of went went through a whole bunch of those and, and just took you know a half dozen of the most commonly cited reasons for project failure. <clears throat> and then I said, well, why? Right? Why do we have insufficient resources? Or why do we have poor executive sponsorship? And what you very quickly find is that, you know, if you have insufficient resources, as we just talked about, that's actually a fact that you have, you're not doing prioritization properly, right? You're trying to do too many projects. Um, if you have poor executive sponsorship, that comes back to a lack of alignment. If you're doing projects that aren't really that important at the strategic level, just, you know, burning big, big picture importance to your leadership team, then you shouldn't be surprised if they get bored and go and do something else. Um, you know, similarly, scope creep. If, if you're not really clear about what impact this project is expected to have on the organization and, and the overall alignment of that with your organizational goals, then, then it's really easy for scope creep to happen. If, on the other hand, you have a really crystal clear definition of why this project matters, why is it here, um, then, then it helps you manage that scope much, much more tightly and so on. So the message from this is that, that um, you know, even if you don't want to spend time thinking about, you know, big picture strategic alignment, every one of these causes of project failure ties back to aligning your projects with, uh, with your overall strategy. And, and to give you an example of this, uh, there's one organization that we, uh, that we work with. Uh, 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 and and when, we, when we worked with them a couple of years ago, um, they had every project tagged, uh, or they had 80% of the projects, in fact, let me, let, don't let me exaggerate, 80% of the projects were tagged as absolutely must have top priority. And when we dug into it, what we discovered was a third of their portfolio, 30% of the portfolio, in fact, was obsolete. We were about halfway through the, the year and 30% and of the portfolio was obsolete, while at the same time being tagged as absolutely must have top priority. Now, that flowed directly through to failed projects because the resource managers couldn't tell 
when everything's flagged as top priority, they couldn't tell which projects really were important. And, and so they couldn't tell where they should be allocating resources uh, and, and giving priority to resources, as an example. Um, and, uh, and so by sorting that out, they were able to focus on the, the projects that did make sense, improve their project delivery, their success rates, and, uh, and do that, by the way, without changing the delivery methodology. Um, you know, many people think that delivering uh, higher project success rates means you have to you have to do something with your methodology, your your, your delivery methodology. Um, you know, you, you got to hybridize waterfall and agile, as as uh, uh, as we were hearing a few minutes ago, or or do something you know new and innovative, or retrain all our people on Prince Two, or whatever it may be. And and actually, you can have a massive impact very quickly, very quickly. In, in weeks, not months, um, you can have a, a massive impact just by figuring out which projects are important and focusing on those. So we keep kind of saying, you know, strategic alignment, important, and it, and it sounds like it's easy, right? Um, and unfortunately, it's not. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it's not easy. Uh, you know, so this thing about alignment, strategic alignment, what does it mean? So one of the common mistakes that people use when they uh, make the, when they're prioritizing projects is that they'll maybe have some kind of simple scoring mechanism to, to score projects, or maybe they'll just talk it through with the leadership team. But at some point they say, oh, right, you know, what's the strategic alignment of this project? And the problem with doing that is that if you don't have a really good definition of strategic alignment, this phrase strategic alignment means whatever you want it to mean. So to the sales team, it means anything that's going to help me hit my sales number this year. To the manufacturing team, it means anything that's going to help us improve quality, reduce waste uh, and improve efficiency. To the customer care team, it's anything that's going to help me handle calls quicker and get people off the phone. And so what you find is this, this notion of strategic alignment, even though, you know, each individual executive has their own picture. Um, usually what you find is that there's no common picture across your leadership team of what strategic alignment means. And if there's no common understanding, no common agreement of, of what strategic alignment means, then there's a, a, there's a portfolio leader. You can't measure it. It's impossible. So I'll, leave, I'll let you kind of noodle that for a second. So if your leadership team doesn't have a good definition of what strategic alignment means, what strategic value means, then you as a portfolio manager can't effectively prioritize projects. Now that's a, that's a pretty big hole. And, and fundamentally, this is why there's 20% of uh, projects that are, that are waste out there. So whose definition are we going to use? Um, how do I get the executives to buy into this definition? And, and actually, that's a really difficult question. Um, and so it may surprise you to learn that uh, in, uh, uh, in business schools, in engineering departments, very often in engineering departments, um, uh, around the world uh, in universities, there are some very, very bright people trying to solve this problem. How do we, how do we prioritize projects effectively? And um, a couple of years ago now, University of New South Wales pulled together um, the last couple of decades worth of research 
and looked at all the different suggestions that were out there. They looked at over a hundred different ways of prioritizing projects. So this is, this is, this goes from um, just the beauty parade where people come in and present projects and executives pick some um, through to spreadsheets, you know, spreadsheet based systems and, and some other um, really, uh, you know, highbrow um, processes. And they came to the conclusion that out of over that hundred uh, different methods, only two were really appropriate. Only two really worked. Uh, one of them was called DEA, Data Envelopment Analysis. Um, and while it does work, it's incredibly difficult to use, in my view. Um, you, you know, you really need to be something of a, a decision science expert to make it work. Um, the other, the other method is something called AHP or Analytic hierarchy process. And AHP is actually pretty simple to use, pretty simple to, to make it work. And, uh, and we love it. We, we built that into our software. You know, we, we, we sell software that helps organizations prioritize, uh, prioritize projects. And we built AHP in right at the heart of that, that, uh, that product. Uh, and we did it before this research came out. So when we saw this, we felt pretty smug, I have to tell you. <laughs> Um, okay, so so what I want you to take away from this is that you know people who want to solve this problem but who don't have any one particular bias, who don't have any particular axe to grind, have looked at this problem and and defined what best practice is. Um, so one of the one of the challenges out there in the world today is with you know YouTube and Google and all the rest of it is there are so many self-professed gurus that it's, it can be really difficult to figure out who to listen to. Well, don't listen to me, right? I'm, I'm one of those self-professed gurus. Um, you know, I'm, I'm waving my own flag. But these guys, these guys are, are kind of independent researchers. And, uh, and actually at, at Transparent Choice, we try and base everything that we do and everything that we put into the product as, as best we can on actual research into what really works. Um, and that's a really important thing to do, not just in prioritization, but across the board. Um, you know, try and try and find the research that, that says that, you know, going in this direction does make sense and does work. So there is there's good research that says that this is best practice um, in uh, in prioritization. So let's let's look at um, how it works. Well, at a high level, it's it's a really, really simple process. Uh, and I'm going to dig into uh, slightly more uh, detail shortly. But at a high level, uh, what you do is you, you go through and you define a set of business goals with the leadership team. So this, this green arrow, this is something that you do with the leadership team. And you might do it once, perhaps twice a year, where you define the overall organizational goals. Right. So it's kind of a structured brainstorming process to, to come up with a, a set of goals and business drivers that you convert into criteria. And then you weight those criteria. Um, uh, so that's that's fine. So far, so so simple. And it, you know, quick spoiler alert: it's how you do this that matters. Um, then the second process is something that uh, you you do kind of continuously, which is you you collect project requests, project ideas, uh, and then you score the projects against the criteria, and then you aggregate all that data. Uh, pull them together with the weighting and you get some pretty pretty pictures at the end that help you figure out which projects you should be rolling out right so so in concept it's really simple 
And as I say, the special sauce is in how you do it, especially this top bit, this this green bit, um, because this is you know, just coming back to to the comments earlier on about emotional intelligence and um, you know how do you how do you um, you know balance people you know, how do you engage people and get them successful within the project? Uh, well, guess what? When you're picking projects, you're dealing with people as well. And so that that human factor is really, really important. And so you know, it turns out that the human animal is pretty complex and how you do that green line, that green arrow really matters. However, um, what, I, what I thought I would do uh, in the spirit of kind of masterclasses, spend a bit of time on this piece here because it really is important. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the weighting in a minute, but how do we define these goals and, and what even are criteria? So um, criteria are just things that we use to discriminate between good projects, uh, the ones that add value and, and bad projects, the vanity projects or the, the knee-jerk reaction projects. Um, so, you know, it could be things like, does it impact, you know, does it have an impact on customer satisfaction or does it have a financial impact or will it make our people more productive or improve quality or, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, whatever your business, whatever your organization needs as a set of uh, business drivers, that, you know, that's what the criteria should be. Um, now, one of the things that people don't do, and it doesn't take long to do, is they often just put a criterion up there. But if you put a criterion up there, quality, that word quality is going to mean one thing to someone in manufacturing, but quality is going to mean something completely different to someone in sales. So whenever you write down a criterion, and this is kind of a life lesson for any decision you're making, whenever you write down a criterion, write down a definition and, and get agreement, socialize that, get agreement about what the, the definition, the description of that criterion is, and a clear statement of why it matters, why you've included it. And then because we're going to use these criteria to measure the projects and the impact of the projects, we also need a, a clear scale. Okay, so don't ask yes, no questions is, is a really important tip. Um, so we're, we're working at the moment with a, a large U.S., government agency and their prioritization model right now basically says, does this project support you know, business driver A? Yes, no. Well, everybody's going to say yes, right? So, so don't ask yes, no questions. Ask, ask it, you know, create your scale and ask the question in the, in the form, um, what contribution does this project make to goal A? And, and have a scale from you know, no, no contribution, you get a zero, um, up to, up to um, you know, a high level of contribution. Um, and, and make sure that you have, you know, five, six, seven levels on that scale. That may sound excessive to, to some of you, but the goal here is to discriminate, right? It, it's to give you the ability to discriminate. And if you just say high, medium, low, there's not a lot of discrimination there. There's not a lot of ability for people to finesse it. So, um, so on your scale, have uh, five levels. Five to seven is ideal, uh, but five five's kind of the common level. Don't sweat if it's four, um, but but five is 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 kind of where where the sweet spot lies, um, and that will give you the ability to actually differentiate uh, uh, differentiate between and discriminate between uh, different projects. Um, 
yes. Okay. Let's let's move on. In the interest of, of time. Now, there are some things that are not criteria that people will often include as criteria. Um, and this is often a surprise to people, but cost, uh, time, you know, uh, person hours, uh, the, uh, skills, resources. You know, if you've got, uh, if you're, um, you're looking at manufacturing projects and there's a particular machine and you've only got one of them, um, that machine is a constraint. It is not a criterion. Uh, cost is a constraint. You only have so much budget. It's not a criterion. So what your criteria should be doing is helping you discriminate between those projects that are value that would add value to the organization and the ones that add less value to the organization. And then things like cost, resources, they're the constraints that tell you how much of those projects you can do. So now we know which ones are adding value. How do we get the most value out of the constraints that we have? All right, so don't don't confuse um, uh, criteria with with constraints. They're different things. Um, the other thing that people will often put in as um, uh, as constraint uh, as criteria are things like: uh, Is this a compliance project or not? Okay, that that's that's not a constraint that's going to help you identify which projects are more valuable. That's just a gate, right? If if it's a compliance project, you have to do it. Right? We don't need to go through the prioritization process. We just have to do it. We have to figure out how to do it in the most effective way. Um, safety is another example of a gating factor um, or uh, uh, readiness. We're working with a large um, product engineering company at the moment and uh, helping them prioritize the features that go into their, into their project, uh, into their products. And so one of the gating factors that we put there which they were thinking of as a criterion, but it's, it's not, it's a gating factor was, is this idea mature enough for us to work on, right? So have, have the marketing guys thought about this enough about what the description should be and what we're trying to achieve um, uh, that we can actually hand this to engineering. And if the answer is no, then we don't prioritize it low. We, we, we stop it at that gate and we send it back and say, just, just you know, think about it some more and then bring it back to us. All right, so um, be clear about uh, the difference between, uh, or rather, I hope it's it's helpful to think about the difference between a criterion, something that's going to help you um, uh, differentiate between projects that really add value and those that don't, and resources and gating factors, which are important, but they're not helping you identify which projects are more attractive. Um, there is a, a webinar on our on our website. Uh, we we had a, 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 a an award winning academic researcher who also does an awful lot of hands on practical work, um, based in Brazil, a guy called Roberto Camano. Uh, we had him come and do a, a webinar on uh, def developing project prioritization criteria, and I would uh, I would recommend anybody watch that if you're interested in improving in improving um, uh, your, your portfolio selection. Um, uh, and you can find it on our website um, here. And I'm assuming, uh, Louise, that these, uh, these slides are going to be available so people can pick up that, that address. Yeah, absolutely. Great, thank you. Um, another thing, when you're thinking about criteria for portfolio selection, criteria are naturally hierarchical. 
Um, so, uh, you know, if, if you're trying to pick a portfolio that delivers the maximum business value, you're going to have a bunch of key business drivers. So these might be things like grow revenue or reduce costs or improve customer satisfaction. But those things are so high level. Those ideas are so high level. They're not terribly useful when it comes down to measuring the impact of a project on those uh, on those business goals. So what you find yourself doing is breaking those top level criteria down into sub criteria. So if this is uh, if you're running an online business and this is we want to grow sales, then this would be increased. You know, these might be: is this going to increase traffic to our website? Is this are we going to improve our conversion rate? And we're going to increase the dollar value of what we sell each individual, right? So if you, if you move any one of those three levers, it's going to have an impact on sales, all right? So it's that, that kind of thing. And so what this allows you then to do is to create metrics that are much easier to measure or to estimate for a project that's coming along. So, you know, do we think that this project will, uh, will increase traffic? Do we think it'll increase our conversion rate or will it help us sell each customer more stuff? Right. And so those are things that we can estimate and we can have subject matter experts um, do that estimation and uh, give us better quality data. So not not you know, when you're scoring projects against criteria, generally you're using subject matter experts to do that, not your leadership team. Um, usually the leadership team is too far removed from uh, from the action to be able to to evaluate projects well against these sort of these sort of criteria. Um, now, of course, once you've got this structure, you have to face the fact that not all of these criteria are equal, right? Some are going to be more important than others. And um, uh, so you need to, you need to uh, weight them, weight those criteria. And this is where lots and more than pretty much every, so that research from uh, University of New South Wales that said only two methods work. Fundamentally, the reason those two methods work is because they do this piece well. Right? This is the step that makes the difference. All right. So, so if you're currently sitting there with a beer in hand, put the beer down and, and just listen for, for a few seconds, um, because this is the step that uh, can transform things. And this is the piece that AHP does. So, um, you know, imagine you've got two piggy banks um, uh, or two or more piggy banks. Let's say you've got three, four, five piggy banks, but they're all identical, right? You know, it, one says P1, one says P2, one says P3, but apart from that, they're all identical. You're allowed to pick one piggy bank. Which one are you going to pick? Well, just looking at them, you can't tell. Um, so, uh, 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 so what, what you did, what you could do to solve that problem is you could weigh them. You could say, which piggy bank's heavier, right? That's going to give you some idea which one's going to add more value. Um, so which piggy bank's heavier and you could go through and you can, you could weigh different pairs of piggy banks and figure out which piggy bank's most likely to give you the most money and take that piggy bank. Well, it's the same thing when you're weighting criteria, right? This is, you know, criteria weights is something that is inherently subjective, Right. So, so it's really difficult to create a, 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 a yardstick to use to measure weighting um, of, of criteria. So, so by using this pairwise comparison process, you can, you can have your leadership team intuitively uh, evaluate one criteria against, against another um, and, uh, and figure out which one is more important. Um, 
and and so you you and that's really what AHP does, and it, it's very different to the way that people traditionally do this. Right, this is about you know you do this as a team. It's about consensus building. It's about listening to each other and really ending up with um, uh, a good uh, a good agreement. Traditional way of doing this, by the way, doesn't work, and I'll, I'll give you you know. Can I show you why? So imagine you're in a meeting, you've written your criteria up on a whiteboard and you, you pull together the leadership team and you say, hey guys, you know, what, what weight should we put on this first criteria? And you know, the, the CEO will stand up and says, well, I think this should be 23.7%, the weight on that criteria. Now there are two problems with that number. Um, the first problem is that she just made it up, right? There's loads of psychology research that I could throw at you to prove that statement. We don't have time to do that today, but you know, that number just came from nowhere. It came from the subconscious and I'm sure she could justify it really well if you asked her, but she'll just be making that justification up. Um, and, and again, that's, that statement's backed up by a bunch of psychology research. Um, go read Dan Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, if you want to learn more. Um, it's a fun read, and uh, it'll, it'll scare you to death uh, um, in terms of you know, how bad people are at making decisions. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing that's wrong with that uh, is that now everyone around the table is no longer thinking about what the right number should be. What they're thinking about is, hmm, do I want to have a fight with the CEO? Right? So, so he's thinking, do I want to take on the boss? And this one's thinking, do you know what? I'm just going to keep my head down. I'm not going to say anything. I'll just, I'll just go with what everybody else is saying. And ultimately, what this leads to is, is the fact that everyone leaves the meeting agreeing on one thing, but not saying it out loud. They all agree that this, this model is meaningless. Right? So how are they, what's, what are they going to do? If they don't trust the, the scoring model that you built for projects, what's going to happen is they're going to start doing backroom deals, uh, playing politics, and you're back to that, that project, that, that, that portfolio that's got 20% waste. Okay, so going back to the piggy banks, right? The piggy banks are how we fix that. Um, and uh, by, by doing it this way, uh, what you do is you, you reduce a whole bunch of bias in the decision-making process. You hear, uh, you get the leadership team all aligned on what really matters. And this has been validated by um, several decades now of research into uh, prioritization and does, does it work, right? So, uh, so this AHP thing here, the special source, is, the thi is really the thing this piggy bank idea of weighing one against the other is, is really the thing that lets you build a model, a strategic value model that really works. Okay. Um, so let's, let's move on. Um, now once, uh, so I'm just, I've got an eye on time. I want to leave a few minutes for questions. Um, uh, so we may not get to look at the, the product itself. All right, so the next thing is that evaluating projects is a process. It's not a meeting, it's not a point in time, it's a process. Projects are coming in all the time. Projects come in and they're not very well formed or documented and you've got to take them through a process of, of evaluation. Um, you've, you've, you've got to add data to them. You've got to estimate the size of the project, what's the risk of this project and so on and so forth. Um, uh, and throughout that process, you want to be able to um, 
you know, manage the, the process of evaluation, manage those steps in a, in a rigorous way so that you know your data's good quality, that you're getting subject matter experts to put in the appropriate data. So if one of your criteria, for example, is what impact will this project have on customer service? Well, have these customer service people answer that question? Don't have someone in finance or someone in, in the project delivery team. What do they know about customer service? Let's go and get the subject matter experts involved. So, so, this, so this process should involve stakeholders, both at the high level and at the low level in the organization, and that will give you much better data to work with. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, and doing this in a structured way um, can really help. So in, in our product, for example, and it's not a product pitch, but in our product, we have this sort of Kanban approach uh, that lets you kind of semi-automate that process, structure it, and then semi-automate that process to make sure that you're collecting the right data from the right people at the right point in time. Um, uh, so it's a process of maturing your projects to make sure that by the time they get to the executive team in that governance meeting, uh, the project is, is mature enough to be selected. That's why we have some cheese there. Um, so again, coming back to this uh, this picture, um, uh, you know, we talked about the piggy banks uh, are, the, are the the secret sauce up here that, that gets your leadership team on board, and then we looked at this uh, uh, maturation process. So now, what we have to do is pick the high impact portfolio. So how are we going to do that? Well, because we've got this lovely model for telling us what kind of strategic value each project, what kind of strategic impact each project is going to have, we can use that to calculate value for money, right? We've got an estimate an estimate for the cost of the project. So if we delight, divide that, that value score by money, we get value for money, right? So, so a really quick way of getting a first pass at picking your portfolio um, uh, is to... Um, is to rank projects by value for money, start on the top and just keep selecting until you run out of money or resources. And of course, you're gonna to need to tweak that to, to balance the portfolio across different teams or you know, maybe there's a particular project with a particular customer that comes in that's gonna trump everything else. Or, you know, I mean, there are always reasons to tweak that model, um, but it'll give you a really, really good starting point for you know, how are we gonna deliver the maximum value within the constraints that we have. Um, so get a really good definition of strategic alignment, score your projects against that, and then take that strategic alignment score and divide by cost, however you measure cost or define cost, and that's gonna give you an indication of value for money. Start at the, you know, rank them by value for money, start at the top, keep going until you run out of money. Right. It's pretty, pretty simple. Um, but at the same time, you've got to keep an eye on resources and, and any KPIs that you're, you know, so if you've got a cost saving, you know, if your organization is going to go bust if you don't save $20 million, then, um, then you need to also be tracking, uh, tracking that. And just really quickly, you know, just to give you an idea of what that might look like. Um, uh, this is just, uh, this is our, our product in the background. So what you might have is, is a chart that looks like this, value for money. We can tell good projects live down here, bad projects live here. And as, you, as you're selecting projects, um, you're seeing, you know, what budget have we spent? What resources are we, have we consumed to make sure that we're picking a deliverable project? Remember, we, remember the cat in the hat. We don't want to be a cat in the hat. 
um, and uh, and you know maybe how are we doing against some key KPIs. So this is the kind of dashboard that you want to have, and down here you can see the projects ranked uh, based off value for money. And uh, you know we just started selecting from the top of that list until we ran out of uh, money. All right. So conceptually, at least, it's it's simple. Um, in practice, as we've seen, it's a little bit more a little bit more complicated. Um, and, and again, the thing I want you to really remember is that the journey matters, right? So just having a spreadsheet isn't isn't enough. It's it's how you got there that that really uh, really matters and is going to determine whether or not uh, whether or not it's uh, a successful process. Louise, we can see you again. You've managed to put the beer down for two seconds. <laughs> I didn't want to get too enthusiastic till we finished. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, well, thank you, Stuart. Great. I always, um, I always, I have heard you do um, presentations over the years, but I, I've got to say, I always learn something new from hearing you speak. So, um, appreciate that very much. Thank you for rushing back from your holidays to to be with us. Um, we have got a couple of questions in in the chat, if that's all right. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, question from Jade. Uh, this. Does this require businesses to get better at writing business cases? So defining benefits and so on. What, what's your view on that? Yeah. I, in fact, I would say that it's a way of helping businesses get better at writing business cases. So um, one of the challenges is that um, it's, it's a great question, Jade, actually, because it, it leads into one of the most common mistakes that people make. Um, so one of the most common mistakes people make is they, they say, write a business case to justify your project and so what people will do is they'll say oh if we do this project we will make 20 million dollars more revenue and save 13 million dollars in costs right and so so there's an implicit assumption in most business cases that the only thing that matters is money and that's not true right money does matter but but other stuff you know strategic direction matters um, actually, probably more. If you get the strategic direction right, the money will take care of itself. Um, so, so that's the first challenge with business case. Well, actually, the first challenge is organizations just not writing them. Right? You have to have a business case of some sort. So, so that what people will typically do is we'll go to that financial business case. So that financial business case, I would suggest, isn't enough. Right? You can do... Uh, so if I was working for Rolls-Royce, arguably the maker of the best cars in the world, uh, certainly the the ones that are uh, or Bugatti, you know, really high end stuff, super high quality. I could put together a business case for a project that would save them $10 million a year. I'm sure I could. But if it undermined the quality of the product, that project, even though it saved 10 million, should never be done because their whole business case, their whole strategy evolves around this idea of quality and exclusivity and so forth, right? So, so a financial business, finance is usually part of the business case, but it shouldn't be the whole business case. You have to, you have to really bring in this idea of, um, uh, you know, that strategic direction of the business. So usually what we see is that the business case that you end up building as you're going through that process, that maturation, the cheese process that we had up there, um, that, that business case will include financial aspects, but it'll also include aspects of strategic alignment. So yes, you absolutely need a business case, but maybe not the business case you first think of. Thanks. Um, Amani's asking, um, great question. Is there any tool you could possibly recommend to use? 
<laughs> well, I couldn't possibly say. Uh, what, do you, what do you reckon that is? Oh, look, in the interests of, of, of full disclosure, obviously um, Stuart is, is the CEO of Transparent Choice. Transparent Choice is the tool that does this, and we partner in them with them um, in Australia to, to support the rollout of such. So in a word, Amani, the answer to the question is yes, absolutely. There is a tool, um, uh, and we don't have a lot of time to go into the tool at the moment, but if anyone would like to see the tool, please reach out to me and we can certainly organize a demo for you or um, you're welcome to reach out to Stuart directly any way that, that works for you um, but yeah we, we, we don't unfortunately today have time to, to look at it too much Stuart's really here um, for his expertise in this space uh, today but yeah any information that anyone would like we want we are more than happy to, to help with so thank you Amani was unprompted as well I hasten to add <laughs> and, uh, and just on the on if you go to our website and, and go to the resources section here the blog and the and the ebooks guides and more section has loads of free resources that'll help you learn more and, and dig into it and when when we see people from from australia we we typically just uh, give louise the heads up so that she can support you locally Great. Um, comment from, from Neil. Uh, when we prioritise for maximum value, in fact, Neil, do you, rather than me reading it out, do you want to do you want to talk to Stuart? I'm getting tired now. Give us a hand, mate. It's a bit of a marathon. Hi, Stuart. So Hi, my, my question basically um, says that when we prioritise for maximum value for money, as you've just told us, I, I'm feeling that this could have a profile of maybe starving areas of the business which are in their growth phase in favour of established business areas where effectively all of their produce are going to deliver better value. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, we, we'd actually need to profile against things like time horizons, the balance of investment across all business areas. And I was wondering whether that was part of the, the criteria selection, and I invite you to comment on that scenario. Absolutely, super question. Great question. So um, given, given an hour, we, we couldn't cover everything, and that's one of the things that, we, that, that I, I cut out. Um, so well picked up. Uh, shame on me for cutting it out. Um, the so within any portfolio, we tend to think of a portfolio as being, you know, everything that we deliver, and, and maybe from a delivery point of view it is, but from a business point of view, most organisations actually have several portfolios. They'll, you know, so one way of thinking about it, one of the more traditional ways, uh, the, uh, I think it was Cranfield that came up with this one, but one of the more traditional ways is, you know, you, you have a group of projects that are about running the business. They're about efficiency um, and, and enabling you know, to do what you do today, but better. Uh, and then there's another group of projects that are about growing the projects. So and, and then another one about transform the project. Those are usually the, those innovation ones. And um, from a project selection point of view, those are typical, those are actually three different portfolios. They're there to achieve different things and you would use different criteria to measure value in those three areas. And, um, uh, and you know, when you get your black belt in this stuff, um, you know, what you can start doing is looking at that, that curve of value for money uh, for each in incremental project. And you can actually start to go to the executive team and say, great, guys, we're still on the steep part of that curve in our Innovate portfolio. So maybe we should put some more money into Innovate. 
Um, but at the same time, we're well onto the flat bit of the curve, right? So each incremental dollar is no longer bringing us a lot of value on the, um, on the uh, run the business part of the portfolio. So maybe what we should do is reduce the, the, the spending on that part of the portfolio and put some of it into the, into the innovation portfolio and, and just help your executive team visualize and understand that, first of all, they have these three buckets and, and help give them some insight into where they can best deploy the resources of the business to have the most impact. So it's absolutely super question, Neil. Thank you for that. And hopefully that answer made sense. Thanks, Neil. Thank, Thank you. you. Good, good answer, Stuart. Uh, last question of the day uh, from yeah. David. Um, have prioritisation guidelines changed during COVID? Something I was interested in, in asking you as well, Stuart. Um, what are you What are you finding the words on the street with, with, with your clients? Is? How, how is the current situation being handled? Right. Well, th those three questions at the beginning, you know, what, what can I stop? Uh, uh, what should I start and, and how do I get ready for the new normal? Those, those are absolutely, um, I, I can't give you a lot of detail because it was some proprietary research, but we're, we're privy to a bit of research from a, a global consulting company that went and asked their customers, so hundreds of uh, uh, top-tier CIOs, around the world. So, you know, these are typically Fortune 1000 type companies, government departments, things like that. Um, uh, and they were talking specifically to the CIO. Um, but those three questions are the three questions that came out. And really, you know, the, 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 the thing, uh, I, I don't know if you uh, remember the slide way, way back at the beginning of this marathon. Um, the, you know, this, the, the COVID has really acted as a, as a wake up call I think for uh, for those leaders because they suddenly realised that they didn't know why they were doing projects. So I think COVID has changed it, but maybe not in the way that you think about it. Um, you know, most businesses I think are getting to the point now where they're on top of the initial crisis and they're starting to think long-term and really what the, the long-term picture, the long-term strategy for most organizations we're talking to hasn't changed very much. Um, and what has changed is the order, the sequencing that they do things. Um, so investments that we don't have to make now, we're going to delay, um, uh, but we're going to be making, but we're making broadly similar um, uh, decisions. The areas where that's where that's changed are, are kind of the obvious ones. Um, you know, if, if you're in airlines um, uh, or the travel industry, you know, the people are making very different types of decisions now uh, because they're they're fighting. So, so it's about how do we cut cost completely? Right? Forget the long term. We may not have one. <laughs> um, so those kind of industries are thinking very differently. And, and I think some government bodies are starting to think differently as well about how do we better prepare for the next one? Because there will be another. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for leaving us on that depressing note. Yeah. No, my pleasure. <laughs> And thanks again to Stuart for, for joining us. It was a really great session. Um, as Stuart mentioned during the session, the Transparent Choice website is full of great resources. So I encourage you to, to go and have a look there. Of course, you can see what Pledge Consulting is up to via our socials. You'll find us on Twitter at Pledge Consult. You'll find us on Facebook and you'll find us on LinkedIn. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.